What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today's guest is somebody who I've been following for quite some time now. I'm super fired up to have on the show. Uh, Man, we've been having a lot of great guests, and this one does not fall short from the great list. Today's guest is the white rhino himself, Mr. Stan Efferding. Stan Efferding is known to be the strongest bodybuilder ever. Like that's literally his one of his nicknames along with the white rhino. But Stan Efferding is a powerlifter. He is a bodybuilder. He is somebody who has over 30 years of coaching experience and he is the founder and the creator of multiple things including the cooler and different stuff. But mainly what we're going to talk about today is the uh, the vertical diet what he is the founder of, the Vertical Diet and Peak Performance. And he is known by this diet because it has uh, caused some controversies because he's so invested in micronutrients in an industry that is so consumed with macronutrients. So he really breaks down the what, why, and how of the Vertical Diet, why it's so important for us to prioritize health first And once we do that, we can go vertical with our macros and with our performance and with all these other measurements. And he actually dives into specific detail of how he is helping the world's strongest man, professional CrossFitters, bodybuilders, bikini athletes, powerlifters, everyday mom and and dads. I mean literally thousands and thousands of people around the world using this diet protocol Um, and he's getting them – fantastic results. But not only fantastic results, performance and aesthetically – but also with their blood tests, with their hormones, with their health, with how they feel, with their digestion. So we go deep into a wide variety of topics, all things vertical diet, of course. But, I mean, we talk digestion. We talk sodium intake. We talk caffeine. We talk micronutrients. We talk how to set up the vertical diet. We talk about his specific athletes. We talk about so many things. You guys are going to learn so much from this podcast. I really, really suggest you stop, take out a notepad, and get ready to take notes because there's so much knowledge in this episode. Before we get into this episode, I do have a couple quick announcements. As always, guys, if you enjoy this podcast and if you are a fan of Stan Efferding, what I need you to do is take a screenshot right now of the podcast you're listening to, post it on your social media, Facebook or Instagram, specifically your Instagram story, tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom and tag at Stan Efferding so we can see who's listening to the podcast. Let us know what you like about it. Um, We want to hear from you. The second thing, guys, this podcast is brought to you by the Boom Boom Elite. The Boom Boom Elite is the membership site of Boom Boom Performance. This is where we drop our latest, greatest, and most advanced training programs for you to get the best results on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. So if you are in need of training programs, whether you are a coach looking to help your clients or you are a client looking to better your body, this is the place for you. You can visit boomboomperformance.com slash elite or click the link in the description below. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to this amazing podcast with the White Rhino, Mr. Stan Efferding. All right, Stan Efferding, man, I'm really excited to have you on the show. I agree with so many of your philosophies, as I mentioned, um, and I did not realize that you're actually, you lived in my hometown of Tacoma, which is a surprise because Tacoma is a small place on the map. So it's cool to see somebody from this area. Um, Before we get into everything vertical, can you just give the listeners a, like who you are in a nutshell, kind of your story of how you got into fitness in general? Yeah, you know, I was just a little kid, uh, 135, 140 pounds when I got to college. I was trying to play uh, uh, collegiate soccer. I was recruited to, uh, I got a scholarship. Coach told me I was too small, and so I started lifting weights, and I just fell in love with it like a lot of people and uh, started trying to learn everything I could about it. started studying exercise science at the University of Oregon, and just it's been a lifetime of passion for me. Uh, it wasn't until more recently when uh, the internet became 
such a big influence in the market that I uh, was able to uh, make this my living. Uh, previously, I had, had always kept my day job because bodybuilding and powerlifting don't pay the bills. And uh, nowadays, I've been, had an opportunity to work with some great coaches and great athletes and, and now uh, produce a, you know, a program that allows me to work with, with hundreds and now thousands of people all over the world. And so I, I just love it. I'm finally doing something that I enjoy. And uh, I feel like it's benefiting a lot of people. The information is things that I've learned over all these many decades of, of coaching and training and competing. And so now I'm, I'm just trying to fine tune and perfect as much as you can with as many variables as there are in, uh, with, uh, you know, clients, uh, a, a program that, that I think helps people reach either their health goals or their performance goals. It, it's really hard. You probably get this for me to picture you at 135 pounds. You're obviously a very large dude now. Was there a point where you fell into the gimmicks or the fads or struggled with weight gain at all to build muscle or was were you kind of um not necessarily genetically elite but somebody who just naturally kind of put on weight no my pops is 5'10 160 pounds so I, it wasn't it was hard for me I, I was uh, it took me two years to compete at 102 almost three years to compete at 158 pounds in bodybuilding I had trained almost three years to compete in uh, at 158 pounds and uh, gaining weight was all, has, has always been and still is, holding on to weight, uh, very challenging for me. Uh, so I, I learned a lot of things along the way, made a ton of mistakes. I did the dirty bulks and uh, uh, paid the price for that numerous times. And um, I, you know, I figured out how to work the macros to my advantage as an ectomorph. And that uh, isn't always consistent with the way I, I manage, uh, you know, mesomorphs or endomorphs, but... Um, I just found that food was the defining factor that, uh, you don't grow in the gym and lifting weights doesn't build muscle. It just breaks it down. And I had to be really disciplined about eating both to gain weight and strength and size, and then to, uh, to lose body fat without losing muscle. It was a very precarious for me. Uh, and in particular, because I always had a very difficult time with digestion issues. And I struggled with that for many, many, many years, if not decades, before I started to figure out, uh, you know, how to, how to uh, refine my diet so that I had good digestion. And I use those tips and tricks and tools now. Uh, they're actually not really tricks at all. It's very common sense stuff um, with my athletes and with great success. So just what I've learned, uh, both myself practically and uh, from coaches throughout the years and from uh, athletes that I've tried my methods on. I, I think I've got a pretty good system in place now. It's been a long time coming. There's a few things I want to pick apart with that, but I think we're going to get into that as we kind of unravel what the vertical diet is. So before we do that, can you tell us how the vertical diet even started? How did you decide to create this program, this plan? It's, it's much more than a diet. It's not like a meal plan. It's, there's so many aspects of it. So I want to get into it all, but I'm curious of how it all started in the beginning. What made you decide to go this route? Yeah, you know, the product, the vertical diet and peak performance, you're right, it does include uh, many aspects of performance and health because it, it is a bit of an orchestra. There's nothing happens to the exclusion of everything else, and that includes sleep, hydration, nutrition, and training. And so the program that I have been using with my athletes for many, many years and, and kind of refined for myself is, is very inclusive, very comprehensive, 
such that it's not just a diet because I don't think just a diet works for anyone. If your sleep's not on point, who cares about your diet? It's not gonna matter. You're gonna have uh, performance problems. And if your hydration's poor, or if your digestion's poor, or if your training is inadequate, or, or uh, is uh, inappropriate for your goals, be it hypertrophy or strength, uh, which can be very different things, or performance, say with CrossFit athletes, et cetera, so it is very comprehensive. Vertical diet and peak performance is what I called it. I've been using that for years. It's something that uh, every time I got a client, I would give them everything I had to help them be successful. And every question they asked me that I answered for them, I would incorporate into the diet program if I thought it had relevance to other clients. And so I just kept updating it and updating it over the years that I'd worked with people and uh, refined it as I found it to be effective for myself and my clients. And then finally, uh, after working with Hofthor for about two years, uh, he obviously had some huge success winning the world's strongest man, Europe's strongest man, the Arnold. Uh, and it was after that, that a lot of people, you know, historically I had just worked with clients personally and used the, my vertical diet program with them. And it was after Hofthor really, I think, uh, uh, you know, had become so successful and, and the diet, uh, people started asking me about what I was doing for him. And that's when I put it on the market as a product, the vertical diet peak performance. And that was just March of this year. So it's, it's relatively new in that respect, but it went viral and uh, many hundreds and now thousands, many hundreds of athletes and now thousands and thousands uh, I probably have over 40,000 downloads worldwide on the, the Vertical Diet and Peak Performance Program. I didn't lock it down, so it's been shared many, many times. Coaches would buy it and then use it with all their clients. Uh, and, you know, some of that was, was, I think, intentional on my part because I wanted as many people as possible to be able to use the program. And then I refined it with the Vertical Diet 2.0, and now I'll be releasing the Vertical Diet 3.0 January 1st that will include a whole uh, bunch of additional uh, details with respect to how specifically things I did for Hofthor, things I did for Camille LeBlanc and Ben Smith and Becca Voigt, the CrossFitters, and things I do for professional MMA athletes. And all of the uh, feedback that I've gotten from dad bobs, and, dad bobs and soccer moms throughout the world in terms of things like uh, lowering blood pressure, um, uh, fixing uh, high blood sugar problems, uh, um, uh, you know, we've even had vertical babies now, people who had low testosterone or low sperm counts who would utilize many of the aspects of the diet, uh, which are simpler than, than one might think. It's just a matter of being disciplined. And uh, we're able to then conceive. And we've actually just had our third contacted me this week that, uh, um, that we're able to conceive after a couple of years of trying and, and even with medical care uh, just because of increasing sperm counts. So it's been exciting. I've had a lot of a different you know, positive aspects, lowering cholesterol, um, you know, a whole host of obviously losing body weight. We've now had many clients lose over a hundred pounds on the diet. So that's what it is. It's kind of a culmination of, of uh, everything. you know, when you work with a client, it's a bit of a collaboration. You learn from them, you teach them certainly, uh, but you also come together and have a meeting of the minds and figure out what works for them. And every time uh, something uh, works for someone, I include it in the diet program as part of, uh, you know, information that other people may benefit from. I love it, man. It's, it's ironic that I didn't realize you started it 
it, it wasn't that long ago that this actually started really growing. And it's ironic that it's called the vertical diet and literally everything just went vertical, went straight up and blew up so quick. Um, can you get into the details behind, like what are the philosophies? As much as you can obviously share, it sounds like you're pretty big on, on sharing. And I've even watched, I mean, shit, you have an hour long seminar on the vertical diet for free on YouTube that I highly recommend people go watch and I'll link in the description. Um, can you kind of give us the ins and outs of what the principles are behind the vertical diet and why this is working so well? Yeah, I think the way the name came about is because I said you can't um, put a three-bedroom house on a two-bedroom foundation. And so I built a foundation of micronutrients. I know that the, the push is now to give people their macros. And uh, I found that to be somewhat oversimplistic. And you can get your macros in but still be nutrient deficient. And so I would find that clients with through blood tests, that's one of the key components of the the diet is, is that I had blood tests done about on a monthly basis for the last 10 years throughout my competitive career. And I was able to see when nutrient deficiencies uh, propped up. Um, when I dirty bulked, I could see insulin resistance. When I was vitamin D deficient and I remedied that problem, I could see um, many things improve. And so I do blood tests with my athletes and I recommend them for people. And I use the, the results from those to, to shore up deficiencies. And so that's kind of how I drew in the foundation. I, I, I pulled from the foods that I felt were the easiest to digest and provided the most highly bioavailable micronutrients. And by that, I simply mean uh, uh, vitamins and minerals that you can easily digest. Uh, for instance, heme iron in red meat, and it's not nearly as readily available in vegetables and certainly not, uh, or in chicken or certainly not vegetables. And B12 would be another example of something. And the reason why I recommend red meat is uh, because of the zinc and the iron and the B12 uh, in particular. And what I found to be a deficiency in uh, bodybuilders in particular, women in particular, dieting for shows. These were people who you would think, uh, you know, would be very healthy doing their cardio and exercising and they're on a, you know, they're losing weight, et cetera. But I found that they were heavily exposed to nutrient deficiencies. And so they were um, demonizing red meat. They were demonizing dairy. They were demonizing fruit. They were demonizing salt. There were so many things that I found were creating these deficiencies, demonizing eggs, demonizing cheese. All of those things, I think, are 100% necessary in diets. And so I've worked with many, many IFBB Pro bikini girls, probably been training female athletes since the late 80s, early 90s. And they're the ones that seem to be the most nutrient deficient because they're the most restrictive. They eat egg whites, white fish, and broccoli. And I found that they suffered as a result from that. They had metabolic adaptation to a very serious degree, and they ended up having serious micronutrient deficiencies, causing their hair to fall out and their nails to get brittle. And that would happen as part of dieting for a show that was supposed to be the pinnacle of health for them. And so it was with them that I was first able to intervene and get, get great results. Men tend to overeat, and so they tend to uh, manifest nutrient deficiencies much more slowly, if at all, uh, whereas women get exposed to them very quickly and end up being of poor health. And so my diet includes dairy, and it includes uh, uh, fruit, and it includes salt, and it includes red meat, um, all of those things that I think contribute to a healthier individual, and then their performance improves, their energy level, their body composition, uh, their ability to, to um, you know, build muscle mass and lose body fat. And uh, so I trained many, many uh, women who uh, now 
won't be as restrictive and, and won't do too much cardio to try and torture themselves into achieving a certain condition. And then with the men, I found that the guys I trained, especially the heavy ones, the Hopthors of the world, they would uh, end up succumbing to metabolic syndrome. They would eat too much of the wrong foods and uh, end up getting fatty liver and uh, high hemoglobin A1C, high blood sugars. And so in many cases, I would have to go in and try and fix those problems. And um, one of the ways I do that is by avoiding first and foremost uh, vegetable oils and wheat. It seems that, that bread seems to be a, a huge problem for these uh, athletes. And I noticed it with myself, with bloating and gas. And uh, so there are foods I avoid, not food groups. I don't eliminate entire macro groups like you would in a keto or a, or a carnivore diet. Uh, but I do, I am selective about what type of vegetable that I feed my athletes and, and what type of dairy. Maybe they aren't, they're intolerant to lactose or uh, whey uh, or whey allergies or casein. And so I'll, I'll have them do a, a, uh, a yogurt, a, a Greek yogurt. I certainly include cheese because of the benefits of the vitamin K2 and egg yolks because for the same reason and biotin, choline uh, for blood sugars. So... I don't know if I'm, I'm saying too much at once, but uh, generally speaking, I build that foundation of micronutrients. And then the vertical aspect of the program is uh, if I want to fuel athletes for performance and they need more calories, I have to be careful what kind of calories I give them. I want to make sure they get a huge return on their investment. Uh, I can't pump them full of bread and I can't pump them full of brown rice or broccoli. Uh, or pasta or pizza or pancakes or any of those things because it'll create that um, uh, that metabolic damage, the uh, uh, what we call metabolic syndrome, the high blood sugars. And they'll end up gaining more fat than muscle. Uh, they'll have horrible digestion problems. Most of the big athletes I work with, like myself when I was powerlifting, end up with diarrhea and gas and bloating constantly. Um, and even the 120-pound IFBB Pro Bikini Girls historically when they were eating tons and tons of broccoli would end up with constipation and uh, all kinds of digestion issues and gas and bloating uh, and mineral deficiencies as a result. A lot of those cruciferous vegetables with the lectins and the anti-nutrients can bind to uh, valuable minerals and electrolytes like uh, sodium and potassium and magnesium and create deficiencies for them. So it works on both ends of the spectrum in terms of uh, the body's the same, whether you're a female dieting for competition or you're a male uh, bulking uh, for you know powerlifting or or something like that the the I think that the fundamentals the uh, the physiology of the body is the same and the things you have to look out for uh, are the same and the nutrients that your body needs to perform optimally are the same and so I include those in everyone's diet just in varying amounts do uh, one question I would have for you on based on that is and I think this is because of my assumption that people have an argument against it, do you find that when you're training guys to get bigger and stronger, they need uh, less calories because their nutrient partitioning is better, because the food that they're consuming is better, because they have less issues? Or do you just find that they kind of break that gap of not being able to, or should I say, being able to get enough calories in? Because a lot of people turn to dirty bulks because it's so hard to consume enough calories with, uh, the if it fits your macros crowd hates the word clean, but clean foods. How do you navigate around that? And do you find that people can gain muscle and less calories when they're following this approach? I'm a huge proponent of the calorie equation, first and foremost. I believe it for deficits in terms of losing weight, and I believe it for surpluses in terms of gaining weight. Uh, 
Second to that is, is quality, food quality. And you hit the nail on the head that um, you aren't what you eat, you're what you digest and absorb. And in some cases, when you overeat foods that your body can't readily use or it's having problems digesting, lactose intolerances, you name it, um, it, will, it will push those nutrients through your body much quicker. And that's why you end up with diarrhea. Uh, and you won't absorb as many of those calories. So yes, I do believe that and have seen that my athletes are able to eat fewer total calories and still make gains. Um, having said that, I've also found that by eating these foods, they're hungrier and can eat more. So it's, it benefits them in both aspects. It's one of the first things that Thor and Shaw said to me. One, they were regular, which is the first time that's happened for them in years. And two, they were hungry. And that's a very rare occurrence because anytime you look at uh, videos of people trying to stuff down 10,000 calories a day, it's exhausting. And that's because they're eating pizza, pasta, pancakes, uh, as opposed to eating, um, you know, I put in ground beef or ground bison or ground steak for people who are trying to gain weight because it's got more surface area. It's a little easier to digest. Um, and then lots of white rice. And then the vegetables that I give them uh, are low gas vegetables. Spinach in particular is a very uh, a much easier vegetable to get your potassium and magnesium from without the burden of all of the anti-nutrients and the gas and bloating, such as broccoli, cauliflower, asparagus. Those really tend to gas you up. I take bread out just mainly because of the gas issue. It's difficult to digest a lot of that. Uh, and not that I think everybody has celiac disease, and uh, or that wheat is necessarily bad if it's whole grains um, uh, but having said that it's certainly not optimal in terms of a driver of calories and i can get those micronutrients from somewhere else that cause less that wreak less havoc on the body uh, i include some fruit in there and you may have heard uh, from my videos before and this this tends to create some consternation in the industry for very specifically for fructose which, as you know, has been demonized uh, because fructose does increase metabolism. It increases body temperature, it stimulates the liver, uh, which then uh, is more efficient for processing thyroid. 80% uh, of thyroid is converted from T4 to T3 in the liver, in a healthy liver. And as you know, when people start gaining weight, one of the problems with uh, metabolic syndrome is, is potentially liver damage, elevation of AST, ALT in the bloodstream or in the blood tests. Uh, and that comes from training as well. That comes from performance enhancing drugs as well. It's one of the lessons that I learned from my blood tests and from things uh, using oral performance enhancing drugs like Dianabol or Anadrol. It, it wreaks havoc on the liver. It's toxic to the liver. And so the liver shuts down your appetite immediately. And that's one of the problems that I had working with a lot of uh, top level per, uh, strength athletes is they experience the same problem. So how do you remedy that problem? You, you work on getting the liver healthy. Um, Milk thistle doesn't do that. Gallons of water doesn't do that. Uh, your liver is the detoxifier. It just needs to be given uh, the tools that it needs to do the job. And so I found that fruit did that. Taking in a few ounces of uh, fruit or fruit juice a few times a day, lowered AST, ALT, increased metabolism, increased body temperature. Uh, I found that with women who were dieting for uh, physique and figure and bikini shows. Uh, one of the first things that happens to them when they restrict calories and start doing all that cardio is their metabolism slows down and their body temperature lowers. Uh, that's part of metabolic adaptation, as we know. And 
you know, you would think that body temperature would be you know, 98.6, but really it's around 97.8 to 98.4, kind of right in that range. And when I have women who are competing measure their body temperature in the morning, thermometer under their armpit for about 10 minutes is really kind of the most accurate measurement I can get. They're usually under 97.8, 97.6, 97.5. That's the problem. Because now your BMR, which is responsible for 60 to 70% of your calorie consumption in a day, is lowered. Your metabolism slowed. You're burning fewer calories at rest. Um, and so one of the ways that I remedy that, well, there's a host of different ways in the diet program that I remedy that, but one is I put fruit in their diet and they'll eat half an orange three times a day. They titrate it almost like medication, like, like medicine. And fruit stimulates the metabolism. It raises the body temperature. And we know this because um, uh, people who are uh, getting surgeries, they're, uh, uh, when they're put under, they, uh, when they have to be brought back uh, from, from surgery, the, um, uh, if their body temperature is too low, they'll infuse fructose into the patient to raise their body temperature so that they can, uh, before they can be brought back out of, uh, of sleep. And so there's plenty of literature that supports that. The liver can handle 75 to 100 grams of fructose a day very easily. I recommend around 50. Uh, some bigger athletes, I might go 75. And I get that with probably three 12 gram doses of, uh, which is about four ounces of orange juice or half an orange three times a day. So it's strategic. Uh, there's a host of other things that I do for both men and women to improve uh, body temperature and improve uh, metabolism. One is salt. I just have them salt all their meals. It's incredible for uh, metabolism. It's also great for digestion, sodium chloride, hydrochloric acid. Um, it's great for energy and stamina and endurance and recovery. Uh, iodine. Iodine is critical for the thyroid. Try iodothyronin. Iodine is part of T4 and T3. So I make sure my athletes get adequate iodine in their diet. That's why I include cranberry juice as a source of iodine in my diet. If uh, they can't access that, then I'm recommending uh, um, an adequate amount of iodized salt. And for some people, they might even have to go higher, like iodorol, which is a 12.5 milligram dose of, of iodine that some people uh, may benefit from, which is also great for the immune system. It's extraordinary for the immune system. Iodine is, reduces uh, breast cancers, uh, gets toxins out of the 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 body, such as um, chlorine and fluoride and uh, bromine, um, and bromides are in bread. So, you know, we're poisoning, our, poisoning ourselves with the chlorine in the water we drink and the fluoride. And then iodine helps uh, shuttle that out of the system. It helps displace it into the bloodstream so it can be processed out of the system because it binds to iodine receptors. So that's a huge one. Potassium is another one. Along with sodium, I, I try and make sure that they get 4,700 milligrams of potassium a day, which is hard to do. You have to be very deliberate about getting 4,700 milligrams of potassium. There's maybe 1,500 milligrams in two cups of spinach. There's four or 500 milligrams in the juice that I recommend daily. There's 900 to 1,000 milligrams in a potato that I recommend daily. Uh, you can get some in the yogurt that I recommend. There's actually 100 milligrams of potassium per ounce of beef. And the reason I recommend uh, the beef in the diet so you have to cobble together a host of different sources to get your 4,700 milligrams. It's difficult to do. You have to be deliberate. But it's huge uh, if for blood sugars as well and for energy and for cramping, um, for heart rate regulation. Uh, potassium is a monster for all those many things. Uh, it binds to glucose to form glycogen. And, and so it, it definitely helps with blood sugars. Uh, so 
I think uh, calcium as well is critical for uh, the metabolism. And that's why I have the vitamin D3 in there because it dramatically improves calcium absorption. And that's why I have some sort of dairy source. If you can't tolerate milk, I go to a, a full fat Greek yogurt. If you can't tolerate that, then we uh, work more specifically with cheese. A hard aged cheese like cheddar is nearly lactose free. So I don't know if I'm getting off track too much, but it's a, there's a host of things that I think work in concert, and it's hard to talk about any of them individually because I think they all need to be utilized together, and they should be obtained for the most part from food, but for vitamin D3, which is really a hormone. It's a, a steroid that is synthesized from the sun in the skin, and so you, it's very hard to get that from food. So that kind of a summary of, of most of the foods, bone broth I put in there for digestion and for collagen, which is important uh, as part of the process um, uh, to create uh, uh, antioxidants in the body. So you know, all of the food, I think, has a very specific purpose, and it all works together. The daily carrot I mentioned about, uh, that people know, I put a, about two or three little baby carrots in at least two meals a day. Um, and that's just strictly for fiber, raw, uh, but it's a root tuber. So it, it's fiber that doesn't cause a bunch of digestion problems. The problem with fiber is it's a double-edged sore. People start taking it and they end up constipated or massive amounts of bloating. And it uh, swells the intestines. It uh, binds to uh, minerals and electrolytes. It impairs protein absorption. So you have to be cautious about how much protein you use and what type uh, or fiber you use and what type. But it is essential for shuttling toxins out of the body. So I'm very specific about each uh, food that I put in there and why. And although initially it may sound restrictive, I, the only thing that, that I'm actually opposed to is vegetable oils. And uh, I'm not even opposed to bread because I have, um, uh, I have uh, fermented bread in there from uh, sourdough because it's easy to digest. Uh, as even with oatmeal, which very, can be very difficult for people to digest probably in, or mostly in large quantities. When you ferment it, when you soak it overnight with some yogurt or some apple cider vinegar, it becomes very easy to digest. So uh, some foods I don't necessarily restrict. I just talk about how you prepare them can determine uh, how well they digest. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a shotgun approach to uh, what I do and why I do it. <laughs> I love it. There's, it. It's breaking down everything inside the vertical diet. And one thing I want to kind of highlight is from, from listening, it's almost like you're taking a step back so you can take people 100 steps forward, right? A lot of people are so focused on performance or aesthetics that it's all about calories and macros, yet their body wreaks havoc in a health perspective, so they can't actually sustain those results, um, which makes me want to ask, too, is a lot of people will look at it, and like you said, like it might seem restrictive, but do you ever find that because you're fixing all these health parameters, people actually have less cravings and they can stay more consistent because their new norm is at such a healthier level, if that makes sense? Well, you hit on two huge things. Uh, one, I step back, I get an unhealthy athlete. When Hopthor came to me, he was 420 pounds and he had metabolic syndrome. He had fatty liver, he had high blood sugars, he had low vitamin D, he wasn't sleeping well. Uh, he said he was gaining more fat and not getting any stronger. So I had to drop him back down to 390 pounds, do the blood test, remedy his vitamin D deficiency, get a CPAP, uh, take out a lot of the foods that I thought were causing inflammation, the processed vegetable oils and the breads, pizza, pasta, pancakes. Um, and then when I saw that his HA1C came down and he became more uh, 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 tolerant to, to sugars or to 
to carbohydrates or to food in general, we started implementing the vertical diet to put weight back on him. And we got him back up to 440 pounds and his blood sugars are not elevated. His blood pressure is not too high. Um, he's gained a lot of muscle and a lot of strength. If you just look at him from pictures from two and a half years ago, as compared to now, it's, it's, it's phenomenal, the difference that's been made. So yes, we, we got him healthy. We backed off. When I get women who have uh, been competing, a lot of times you'll see these women win nationals and get their pro card, and they might do one, maybe two pro shows, and then you don't hear from them. They've burned out. They've completely wrecked their metabolisms. And so when I get a hold of them, I have to back way up. I have to eliminate uh, some of the foods that are causing problems. I have to incorporate a lot of the foods that they've historically been uh, avoiding, all the ones I mentioned, the fruit and the dairy and uh, the iodine and the sodium and the red meat. Um, and that, that's as much mental as anything else, just getting them to overcome that, that, that hurdle, that barrier, um, the stigma associated with those foods. Um, so I get them healthy. And then next thing you know, they, ha they can have, uh, they're, they're able to train and compete without uh, creating those problems for themselves. It's more sustainable. So the second thing you said was about cravings. Um, there's two reasons, I think, uh, and I'll, I'm, I'm the first one to say that all diets work when they're strictly adhered to, and that compliance is the science. And if you'll stay on a diet, and I talked about this in my obesity rant, even the McDonald's diet works. And the process of losing weight is probably 95% of the health benefits come from weight loss, not necessarily any specific diet. Now, of course, there's long-term ramifications there if you create micronutrient deficiencies like the HCG diet, you know, or even veganism, it may take months for your B12 deficiency to manifest uh, or your iron deficiency before you start seeing the, the, the pratfalls of that, the loss of hair and the teeth rotting out of your mouth, et cetera, gum disease. Um, so yes, there are, I have to be careful when I make these broad statements, but all diets work when they're strictly adhered to and, and losing weight is the primary driver of health outcomes. Even the McDonald's diet, he lost 30 or 40 pounds and, uh, and walked 40 minutes a day just by keeping an 1850 calorie, um, uh, maximum intake and his blood sugars improved, his blood pressure improved, his cholesterol improved, you know, all of his health markers improved from that experiment, as did the 7-Eleven diet, and I think even the ice cream diet resulted in some improvements in, in uh, health markers. So now what do you do? You focus on compliance. We have, what, a 90-plus percent recidivism rate? You, you help people with their diet, and they lose some weight, and 90% of them gain it back. So you have to ask yourself, is this sustainable? And I try and pride myself on creating a diet that's simple, sensible, and sustainable. And is it something you can do for the long term? Uh, some of the, the problems with long-term long is, is if you create nutrient deficiencies, obviously that's going to uh, hamper your ability to go long-term. But I think there's two primary reasons that people come off of diets. And um, one is hunger, cravings, and two is loss of energy. When either of those two things happen, then people binge. And I try and remedy those two things with some of the things we talked about earlier. One is potassium and one is salt. People generally have sugar cravings when they're salt depleted. And if they don't get adequate carbohydrates and they lose the glycogen from their muscles, then they also lose three parts water. They also lose all the sodium associated with that. So as you're probably aware of, uh, when you get somebody that's on a carnivore or a keto diet, you have to put salt in them, a decent amount of salt in all their food. 
to try and prevent some of those cravings and some of the energy loss, et cetera. Uh, potassium is another huge one for cravings. People um, tend to get cravings when they get low in potassium. As I mentioned, potassium binds to glucose to, to, form, uh, to store glycogen in the system. Those two things are huge for cravings. Uh, also satiation, when they get hungry. And so I'll use steak instead of ground bison for people who are hungry a lot because it's harder to chew and takes longer to eat. And I'll encourage them to take more, uh, to chew longer and to take longer to eat their meals. Because as you know, the leptin isn't released uh, for probably 15, 20 minutes into the, the meal. And if I can get them to, to take longer to eat, then they'll be satiated by the time they're done. I also include say the potato uh, because that's a high satiety food. I use fruit instead of fruit juice uh, for them. And those are all ways that I can manage uh, appetite to some degree. Now you're gonna be a little hungry. That, that's part of losing weight. That's the body's compensatory mechanism to, to feeling starved. So the second piece I said, uh, after uh, uh, being hungry or having cravings is low energy. And low energy happens when you restrict salt and when you restrict calcium and when you restrict iodine and when you restrict uh, red meat, iron and B12 are critical for energy. B12 is, is critical. It's in the mitochondria of every cell in the body for generating energy. That's what it does. Uh, so all of those things are critical. So I make sure that I, uh, as far as energy levels go, that I include all of those things in the diet, uh, the fruit and the sodium and the iodine and the, the dairy, the calcium from dairy. Uh, and so I, what I find is that people who go on my diet start losing weight and they don't lose energy. And that to me is very encouraging. That's one of the questions I ask them at check-ins every week. How's your strength? How's your energy? How are your cravings? How's your uh, regularity? You know, I want to make sure that they're digesting their foods well and that they aren't uh, losing too much energy. I have clients that are losing five, six pounds a week. As you know, some relatively obese beginners are, are apt to be able to do that. Um, they can lose 30, 40 pounds in two, in two months, no problem. Uh, but the, con the, the concern is, is do they get hungry and do they get tired? Uh, in which case they'll start uh, seeking out high sodium and which generally high calorie foods to compensate for that hunger and, and exhaustion. So that's, you hit the nail on the head on both those things. That's what I focus on and why I pick those foods. I love that. I, I got to highlight it again too, because I think for, there's a lot of coaches that listen to this. So for good coaching, it's important to check in with your clients on the things you just mentioned. You're not just looking for a weigh-in, right? We're looking at sleep and stress and mood and hunger and cravings and all these different aspects that lead to better results. Um, and then again, that just for people listening, I think a big piece of what you do so well is nutrient partitioning. You're getting the body to accept calories so much more efficiently that they are losing weight because they're using the calories the way they're meant to be used for performance, for energy, for hormonal health, um, so on and so forth. I, I do want to get to some listener questions because we had a bunch of people send some in, and I think there's some sure. great topics that we kind of just brushed over. Um, one specifically was why was sodium demonized and why do people need to have it? Um, as you are aware of, you know, Mrs. Dash came out years and years ago, and everybody decided to go on this like low salt phase. Why was that, and why is it so important for us to be consuming salt regularly? Well, I think it's because it was associated with hypertension that uh, some of the research may have suggested that it'll raise your blood pressure. Uh, the problem with that is, is that there's only a small percentage of, of hypertensive people, so sodium sensitive people who respond that way. And like many things in the medical community, you know, uh, you, know um, you, you prescribe 
what's the term that's used to uh, um, treat the many to, to save the few <laughs> is generally what happens. And uh, so with salt, that's what happened, uh, that people, uh, some of the research had associated it with high blood pressure, but it was hypertensive individuals do respond poorly, and there is a small percentage of people. The PURE study that recently came out was one of the largest studies. I think it was over 100,000 people were specifically tested for sodium intake in something like 14 countries over a 10-year period. Uh, showed us that there was a healthy range, about three to six grams of sodium a day. Now, mind you, six grams of sodium is 15 grams of salt because it's a 40% sodium chloride solution, right? And uh, so that range of healthy range of three to six grams a day, when you get below three grams a day, I don't care who you are, salt sensitive or otherwise, there seems to, there's a, a dramatic spike in all cause mortality. And so low sodium, say the DASH diet, 1.5 milligrams a day, or even um, the World Health Organization and the American Heart Association recommending 2.5 grams of sodium a day, uh, is, is still below what is the healthy range. Uh, fortunately, very few people are able to maintain that amount uh, just because they'll feel terrible. Uh, worldwide, I think the average is closer to five grams, just, uh, just as a matter of people getting what they need. Uh, and that's what tends to happen. You tend to eat the salt that you need, your body will, will find it one way or another and seek out the foods through, um, uh, through giving you cravings, etc. That's why pregnant women eat pickles and uh, that's why uh, athletes chase french fries. They think it's the carbs, but it's the salt uh, that they're getting that they need. So that range, I think, is about three to six grams. Now, when you go over six grams, only the, the hypertensive people tend to respond poorly. And even in that instance, uh, the vast majority of those are found to be low in potassium, magnesium, and calcium. And when you remedy for that, then the hypertensive, uh, the elevated blood pressure dramatically improves. Uh, and even then, on the vast majority of people, the, the blood pressure movement was only two to five millimoles. So if, if you had a so 120 blood pressure, it might go to 125. Very insignificant. The challenge is, is that now what problems have you caused as a result of restricting sodium, which is a very of little consequence to the vast majority of people. Now you create these dehydration deficiencies. You lose energy, stamina, endurance. It affects your digestion. It affects your immune system. Uh, it's, it it's affects so many things that it's just senseless to be restricting sodium. Uh, your body can process 30 grams of salt a day, no problem. The kidney's easily a healthy kidney. Uh, system can easily process that. We have uh, communities such as Japan who eats a lot of seafood. They're easily taking in 30 grams of salt a day. And uh, they have some of the lowest, uh, they have the uh, cardiovascular problems and, some, and the highest uh, uh, life expectancy. So I think it's been a huge myth. Dr. D. Nicolantonio's book, The Salt Fix, addresses it very well. It's an excellent resource. Uh, there's a host of other people who have since uh, uh, come out in support. Dr. Sandra Godick from the Heat Institute uh, is a PhD in thermal regulation and hydration. She's a big promoter of getting adequate salt in the body, particularly for athletes. They burn through two and a half milligrams or two and a half grams of sodium an hour. So now in addition to what you need just to sustain, you know, a healthy life, you need to get two and a half grams an hour for every hour that you're training uh, for hard training this is one of the biggest things I did for Camille LeBlanc and Ben Smith, for Hafthor and Shaw when they were in Manila at the World's Strongest Man, for professional MMA fighters I work with, hydration, and not just for, for competing, but for training. If I can get them to take half a teaspoon of pink salt on their tongue and wash it down with 10 ounces of water, 
about 30 minutes before training, their time to exhaustion can increase by up to 20 minutes and their stamina and endurance and their performance and their recovery all dramatically improves. If you get a client that's lightheaded while they're training, that's a sodium deficiency. You get them to do the half teaspoon with water about 30 minutes before exercising and that goes away immediately, not within a week, within a day. And so that's one of the ways that I use sodium uh, for performance in particular. Uh, and depending on your body size, your sweat rate, how hot it is outside, the workload that you do daily, if it's two a days, it's like a lot with a lot of the CrossFitters, uh, you may need more. And depending on how much water you drink, drinking water does not, it, it is, is not the be all end all for hydration. There is no water in the body per se. It's all fluid and it contains sodium and potassium, magnesium and calcium. So that fluid has to be, uh, have the right amounts of micronutrients and minerals and electrolytes in it. So drinking tons and tons of water can actually dehydrate you, can flush those, uh, those electrolytes out of the body and you end up peeing clear, which is not a good thing. So we're looking for lemonade, not apple juice, and we certainly don't want it to be clear. So you know you have adequate uh, electrolytes in the body. So it's kind of a, a shotgun approach to, to sodium, but it, it's one of the single most things that athletes have come back to me and said has dramatically improved their performance in the immediate sense. I'm talking within a few days, they go do a workout and they've got a, a 20 pound PR on their squats. And that's not exaggeration by any stretch of the imagination. I've got testimonials from people all over the world and they reach out to me all the time uh, telling me that that has been the single most dramatic improvement in their energy levels and performance was, the, was salting their food to taste. If, if we want to talk about how much, that's what the professionals recommend. Salt your food to taste. Meaning if you put too much on your food, your tongue will tell you. And if you don't put any on your food, you're not going to uh, realize the benefit. Food's the best way to get salt. Uh, you generally can't get enough salt in a drink. It wouldn't be palatable. It would taste horrendous. That's why Gatorade is not terribly effective with the salt that they put in their uh, drinks or, or most others for that matter, because it wouldn't taste good. Uh, if you put half a teaspoon of salt into a glass of water, it's going to taste horrendous. Get your salt with your food, particularly because carbohydrates is the shuttle that takes the sodium uh, throughout the body. And that's the best way to get adequate salt and then utilize that intra-workout method that I talked about uh, with the half teaspoon of salt prior to training uh, as a, as a sports specific dose. That's amazing. I think it's hilarious because it's not a, everybody's searching for a marketed supplement and it's like, no, just some pink salt and you're good. And it's going to help you that much. And I think this next question from a listener kind of relates because I believe you have a post-workout recipe or remedy for people that relates to both of these. Um, but they want to know your stance on caffeine. Yeah, I think caffeine can be a performance enhancer when used strategically. Your body can absorb about one gram of glucose a minute. If you add a second sugar source, then it can absorb two grams a minute. That's why I recommend taking in both fructose and dextrose. Uh, the Heat Institute, Dr. Godic, has a product called Levelin, and she recommends uh, dextrose and maltodextrin, I think, are the two that she puts in her product. And she puts a significant amount of sodium in her product. Um, so now you're getting two grams a minute because you're using two carbohydrate sources for absorption. Add salt to that blend. You get three, uh, three grams a minute. Your body will absorb three grams of glucose a minute. Add caffeine to that equation. You can get as high as four grams a minute. So when uh, George Lockhart, who trains Conor McGregor and John Jones and uh, a host of other uh, um, UFC athletes, he, he 
does their water cut for them. After they get done weighing in, they step off the scale. He hands them a drink. And in that drink is two sources of carbohydrates, some sodium and some caffeine. And he throws some digestive enzymes in there and maybe a little EEA, uh, essential, amino, EAA essential amino acids, just because they're so dehydrated. Uh, I don't think that for the average individual that, that uh, the amino acids are necessary during the workout. If you got a meal two hours prior and you're not at a calorie deficit and uh, you're getting a meal an hour after, then they're relatively worthless. But having said that, uh, that's the drink he gives them and they absorb it at about four grams a minute. And now if it's say 100 grams of, of carbs, which that is probably a little high, it's gonna take you 20 minutes to absorb all of those. So he has them drink it slowly. It has them take 10, 15 minutes to drink that drink. He watches them, make sure they don't you know, guzzle it down, which could create some uh, digestion problems. And he has them start take a walk. So they drink that drink and then they take a 10 minute walk. You've heard me talk about the 10 minute walks after meals and how effective that is for increasing uh, nutrient partitioning and uh, insulin sensitivity and di improving digestion. Um, so uh, he's pretty strategic about the way he takes it up. So in my uh, vertical diet, I did talk about a post-workout drink that included two carbohydrate sources and some sodium and some caffeine potentially, particularly if you train twice a day. If you don't train twice a day, taking that drink after your morning workout is probably not terribly important. Getting the sodium in prior, I think, would be of a bigger benefit. Uh, and I'm, I've come to the conclusion, I think, after uh, having experimented with myself, and I think the president of the uh, International Sports Science Association talks about, uh, as, as well as um, John Meadows, talks about a para-workout, an intra-workout, drinking it, sipping it throughout training. So I'll take the salt before the workout, and then 10, 15 minutes into my training session, I'll start sipping on that concoction, my two carbs, salt and caffeine, throughout the workout and then finish it when I'm done. To me, that's probably the optimal way to utilize that drink. Unfortunately, I do a two-hour seminar and 90% of the questions are about that drink. And they seem to have missed the sleep portion and the nutrition portion and everything else. And uh, so that's why I, I try and say, uh, mention in these interviews that that drink isn't isn't the panacea. It's for a particular purpose. The sodium's the primary driver of, of I think the workout energy, and the carbohydrates can be obtained by the meals you get post workout over the next 24 hours until you exercise again, unless you're a highly competitive athlete training twice a day like CrossFit or MMA, in which case that second workout could benefit significantly from the hydration that you get from the first work right after the first workout that creates a huge result. You already alluded to this a little bit, but the next question mentioned the walk. So let's just get right into that. Um, you recommend many people to take three 10 minute walks per day. What started this and why three 10 minute walks? You know, I recommend everyone do it, whether you're an athlete, whether you're uh, just a, a truck driver. Uh, you know, we, I just had a truck driver at my seminar uh, over the weekend. I had a vert cert here in Vegas. And he said, I'm a truck driver. What can I do? And I said, well, every time you stop, you take a 10-minute walk. Um, some way to get the blood flowing. Uh, you know, I'm not certain where it came from. It was just some of the research. I was having problems with elevated uh, HA1C. I was vitamin D deficient. Um, I was training and then just sitting around a lot. Um, I implemented after, in 2010, when I was training with Mark Bell for a powerlifting competition, I noticed the more I laid around, the more, the longer my DOMS lasted, my delayed onset muscle soreness, and the longer it would take me to recover. And the more I moved around, the faster I would recover. 
kind of a no-brainer, but you know, in the powerlifting industry and, and when you're trying to gain weight, the mantra is, you know, don't run if you can walk, don't stand if you can sit, and don't stay awake if you can sleep. And then just eat anything and everything that you can all day long, right? That was that was how we tried to gain weight. That was my dirty bulk. And but I found that when I was squatting with Mark and we were, you know, working really hard and very heavy, that if I just laid around a lot, that I was sore longer. So I got a recumbent bike and I put it in my hotel room I was staying at in Sacramento when I was training with Mark for those, those months that I trained with him. And the day after leg day, I would sit on that recumbent bike and I would do a 10 minute hit session, 30 seconds sprints with a 30 second rest. And I would do that 10 times. It only take me 10 minutes. There's a little bit of tension. It was all concentric loading. So I wasn't creating any muscle damage as you might if you put a light squat in there uh, with the eccentric movement. And I would do that three times a day do that when I got up in the morning, I would do that in the afternoon and in the evening, whenever, it didn't seem to matter. And my recovery rate was probably cut in half. I felt incredibly better. Uh, I was able to, to recover faster. My training sessions much improved. Uh, and then after, you know, looking at some of the research on it, uh, I noticed that there had been some benefit. Had shown, there were some science studies that I put in my vertical diet that and just to mention it while I'm talking about it, the vertical diet has over a hundred references to videos, articles, and scientific studies supporting every aspect of what I propose in the diet. And so people can get more information. It's intended to be pretty easy to, to read and to follow and to implement, but then have those additional resources if people need them uh, so they can, uh, you know, be confident that they're, you know, they're on the right track of pursuing a, a good, a good Avenue. Uh, so the post, the, the literature suggests that when you walk post-meal, you improve uh, blood sugars. The, the scientific research suggests that it lowers HA1C and it, it, it decreases the spike of insulin and the duration of insulin that's in the bloodstream. Uh, and the glucose is absorbed quicker. Part of it may be the mTOR pathway where the muscles uh, can absorb glucose in the absence of insulin. Some of that is being shuttled in uh, just from your work, just from walking. It's a brisk walk. I do like to swing my arms and get an elevated heart rate. And the studies suggest that you can take 10,000 steps a day, but if you take 4,000 steps doing these brisk three 10 minute walks, you have better improvement in body composition, VO2 max and blood sugars because of the intensity. And again, it's not a sprint, but you do get your heart rate elevated and you do it three times a day as opposed to one. Three 10 minute walks is better than one 30 minute walk at the end of the day. It seems that you can't undo sitting all day with one exercise program at the end of the day sitting's the new smoking and the damage is, is exceeds the uh, workout that you do in the evening so my recommendation is, is you walk during the day or even standing up at your desk for 10 minutes out of every hour if you're if you sit during work uh, i think that the research that i put in the the diet suggests that that's equivalent to running 17 marathons a year because standing burns more calories than sitting if you want to look at at, at the comparative calorie consumption benefit uh, specifically, certainly not the VO2 benefit, but that's kind of where the 10 minute walks came in. And I use them for uh, Stephanie Sanza is uh, Steph Fitmum from Australia, real popular fitness personality and uh, social media. Uh, she used to do your get up at 4 AM, do her 40 minutes fasted cardio and do another 40 minute session in the evening. And um, she used to eat egg whites and broccoli and, she had IBS, like a lot of my uh, female. Uh, she also had, uh, uh, I didn't lose you there, did I? It just cut out for a sec, but you're good. 
Okay. Well, Stephanie Sons uh, reached out to me nearly a year ago now, and she had all the problems that all the women, competitive women, have had that have reached out to me over the years. Um, she had digestion problems, irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, she was having a really hard time maintaining her condition and her weight. She would uh, get bloated and um, water retention, and she was tired and uh, what have you. And she was on the typical diet. And uh, so I convinced her to eat the red meat and to eat the dairy daily and to eat the fruit and to take the sodium and to uh, do all of those things and to quit with the egg whites and stop with the broccoli and to stop uh, with the 40-minute cardio sessions. She now, uh, all these many months later, is in the best shape of her life, eats more calories, eats more carbs, never does more than the 10-minute walks. She hasn't done a 40-minute cardio session in, in nine months. And she looks better than ever. She looks phenomenal. Uh, and I replace that calorie consuming. Uh, you know, I, I think that, that maintaining a calorie deficit is twofold. As you know, I, I restrict some calories sometimes, but I also increase workload. So I think it's a better way to go because I think there's, there's, a, there's a floor to which you can't cut calories anymore without, uh, I think, harming uh, an athlete's uh, system. So uh, she'll do the, the three 10 minute walks. And uh, then if she needs to burn more calories, I'll just have her do two hypertrophy sessions. So instead of doing an hour and a half workout in the evening, she'll come in in the morning and do 40 minutes and she'll come in in the evening and do 30 minutes. And it's just hypertrophy training. She's just doing volume sets and reps. So that's a specific example of how I use that for, um, for use the 10 minute walks for people that are dieting. Hawthor uh, uses, and Shaw, they use the 10 minute walks uh, to improve their metabolism, to, to increase, uh, uh, to benefit insulin sensitivity, to, um, nutrient absorption, like you said, the partitioning, uh, and to, to make them hungry. They just utilize their food better and faster, and they're hungry sooner, and they can eat another meal because consuming enough calories is, is of primary importance to those guys. And anything I can do to maximize that, which we talked about earlier, uh, and the 10-minute walks also dramatically benefit that. And it sounds contrary to everything I did in the 90s when I was trying to gain weight. I wouldn't, I wouldn't move a finger if I thought it would burn a calorie that wouldn't help me grow these guys do 10 minute walks after every meal because it's hugely beneficial for gaining size and strength by improving that nutrient partitioning and insulin sensitivity so uh Hawthor still does them he's been doing them for two years he has a bike in his garage if it's too cold in iceland uh shawl use a bike if he's too heavy for his feet sometimes uh all that pressure on his feet that being that weight so everybody does them i still do them uh, if i'm at the airport traveling I'm picking up my pace and swinging my arms and busting ass through the airport to get my 10 minutes in. If I'm at a hotel, I'll get up in the morning and eat, and then I'll walk circles around the hotel. If I go to a restaurant, I'll walk out of the restaurant, and I'll just walk down the street for five minutes, turn around and walk back before I get in my car to drive home. So I incorporate them into my daily routine. I'll put my daughter's breakfast on the table in the morning. I'll go take a 10-minute walk, and when I come back, I'll get her ready for school. So there, that is part of the sustainable portion of the diet program. Everything I implement, I try and make sure it's something you can do as part of a lifestyle. A 40-minute walk on a treadmill is not anything anybody's going to do long-term. There's not a chance. That's the first thing you're going to cut off your list when you get busy. And plus that, it's just mind-numbingly boring. So the 10-minute walks revive you. They're, they're easy to do. You can do them every day forever, and you should. The, the Amish walk 20,000 steps a day. Uh, they eat um, ham and bacon and, and uh, uh, lard and butter uh, and all kinds of stuff every single day. They have 3% obesity and nearly half the cancers that we have. They just move more. 
more often. So it's kind of the roundabout on 10 minute walks. I love it. That's so, so huge. and so simple. And, and the thing that keeps coming up in my mind is I read this post the other day and it was like, uh, your diet is not just what you eat. It's what you watch, who you hang out with, what you move, how you move, all these different things. And that's to me what the vertical diet is. It's so cool because there's so many non-food related things that you implement into it to make sure people are improving their health. So it's so big. Um, the next question is, and I actually haven't heard you talk about this, so I'm interested about this. They were interested in your perspective on vertical diet plus time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting and how you feel about that. Yeah, you know, I never want to shit on anybody's diet because what works for you is most important. If, if keto works for you, do keto. If carnivore works for you, do carnivore. I'm cautionary to say that there are some things you should pay attention to so that you don't end up with deficiencies or that it's easier to follow. And that's why I mentioned with the salt, with, with the keto diet. Um, I also like to make sure that people get enough potassium in, and that's something that you have to pay attention to on a carnivore diet. Uh, intermittent fasting is another example of that. Intermittent fasting can work if it creates a calorie deficit. And for some people that overeat, restricting the window can help them create a calorie deficit. And far be it from me uh, to uh, tell somebody that's not a good plan if it works for them. If they can lose weight on that program, what's the best diet? The one you'll follow. And I start there. And I create that calorie equation for them. And then I try and settle them into something that works for them. And if intermittent fasting works, I'm, I'm all for suggesting it. Now, to take that a step further, if you think there's some sort of magical benefit to intermittent fasting, some sort of hormonal benefit, it doesn't exist. And actually, a little to the contrary. Schoenfeld and, uh, and uh, Aragon just came out with another study that looked at intermittent fasting with respect to uh, muscle retention and found that because of that extended uh, fasting period, uh, you were at risk of losing more muscle tissue utilizing intermittent fasting, which is a concern because it compromises your metabolic, uh, your metabolism, your, your um, basal metabolic rate, right? Your number of calories that you burn in a day. So that's one of the things that we all worry about when people go on diets is metabolic adaptation. How much muscle do you lose? Because that's the engine that burns the fuel. And we don't want to take off too much muscle uh, because then you end up lighter, but you have to eat fewer calories to maintain that mass because you don't have that extra muscle tissue burning the extra calories. Uh, so that's the science suggests that that fast can be detrimental. And I'm not saying you're going to lose five pounds of muscle overnight, but over a three to six month or a year long period, uh, compared to eating four meals a day, about every four hours, uh, it doesn't, it isn't any better for weight loss. And when you compare for calories, and it can be detrimental in terms of muscle loss compared to the amount of fat loss. So that's the only cautionary note I might mention. Of course, uh, resistance training helps. Um, you know, getting an adequate and optimal amount of protein could certainly offset some of that loss. Uh, but it does seem that, that apples to apples, uh, intermittent fasting is not optimal, particularly for athletes. I never encourage competitive athletes to do that. I know there's been a lot of talk about how it increases growth hormone and all this other stuff. And so athletes are like, ooh, growth hormone. Uh, which doesn't even contribute to, to muscle, uh, to hypertrophy anyhow. So it's kind of a, a false flag. But I encourage athletes to eat about every four hours while they're awake because, as you know, there's no mechanism in the body to, to store protein. And when your body reaches for amino acids to do a repair, and it could be muscle tissue, it could be anything, uh, and if it's not there, it has to wait. And that's not optimal. Uh, so... 
that's what I recommend with specifically to intermittent fasting. That's kind of the, the whole view. I think that's a perfect answer. And, and what I always kind of preach on my podcast and, and with my client stuff is it's an adherence tool. So if you're an average Joe looking to lose weight and it helps you, like you said, stick to the diet plan, by all means go for it. But it's nothing, it's not a magic pill. It's not something that's going to immediately lead to a result. Um, and I believe a lot of studies have come out on it showing any hormonal or health benefits to be when you're fasting once every three months for 36 plus hours in a straight fast, not training, so on and so forth. Yeah, I was going to say about every six weeks, if you do a 24 hour would be fine. Uh, and like you, you went up to 36. I think once you get over about 24, there may be some downsides, but it's, it's, it should be periodically. Yeah. So you get a 12 hour fast every night. If you eat four meals a day, eight noon, four and eight and 12 hours is, is pretty reasonable. That, that can definitely uh, help offset some metabolic syndrome. People who eat every two hours, we might as well jump on this real quick. That can be a problem. That can create insulin resistance. It also doesn't benefit from uh, the refractory period for muscle protein synthesis. When you eat a meal, your muscle protein synthesis uh, spikes and then slowly comes back down to normal. Well, that process takes about three to five hours. And if you eat a meal two hours later, you don't spike muscle protein synthesis again. And so you're not getting the extra benefit of the, uh, of the muscle protein synthesis, and you may be impairing uh, absorption uh, of uh, uh, insulin sensitivity. Having said that, for big athletes, getting calories in is a, a primary, of primary importance. So you, you have to weigh these things against the individual's uh, needs. I love it. That's 100% in line with what we always preach here. And I think just from a digestive and an insulin benefit alone, the three to four meal range and that 12 hour period at night is so helpful for people to, to actually see beneficial results. Um, this last question that we have for you today um, is more of a personality question. I, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this one. They asked, in regards to health and fitness, what advice would you give yourself 10 years ago? Wow. If I knew then what I know now, uh, I'm probably doing most of it with my athletes. I, I certainly would have taken in more salt. I would have avoided bread more because it, it, it just wreaks havoc on my stomach. Vegetable oils is another thing I didn't discover until very late in the game. Uh, those processed vegetable oils, particularly for me, I'm allergic to them. So they cause gastric distress in a very bad way. Uh, and that was before I knew about um, the, 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 poly, the uh, omega-6s and the, um, the cellular structure that's created by the omega-6s as opposed to the, the efficiency and the, the rigidity of the saturated fats in the cells. And then, um, of course, the oxidation of those when the fat burns, when your body utilizes that energy source and uh, creates free radicals in the system, it's just a lot less efficient fuel for your body to use. And that's again, beyond the fact that the vast majority of those vegetable oils are already rancid when you get them exposed to light and heat. And that includes 70 plus percent of omega-3 supplements are rancid, exposed to light and heat. Uh, so I definitely would have avoided vegetable oils. I would have avoided bread more uh, for certain and had a better variety. Um, I would have salted more. I would have been more focused on potassium. Probably everything that we talked about that makes up the foundation because I was certainly stacking a three-bedroom house on a two-bedroom foundation, and uh, I mean, just I was just teetering underneath it. 
uh, and I probably pushed myself as far as I could. And I was fortunate to get out without any significant injuries. But I, I, I had from my blood tests, I could see when I was unhealthy. And, you know, but when you're competing, as I said in my rants, you know, if you want to be healthy, don't compete. You tend to look past those things. And I understand when I work with a Hoffmore, a Shaw, or a Dan Green, or even a Camille LeBlanc, that competing isn't healthy. And so I have to, to be very, very diligent behind the scenes to do everything I can to remedy that, that to, to mitigate the damage that they're doing to their body, because there's no way you can compete at that level without doing damage. And so I'm, I'm underneath them trying to shore all of that up uh, by looking at their diet, all the specific aspects of their diet and their recovery and the CPAPs for sleeping and the vitamin D supplementation and whatever else and getting the blood tests so I can see, you know, if they're having any uh, metabolic syndrome or metabolic adaptation issues. So probably just about everything that's in the vertical diet is all the things that I wish I was doing <laughs> 12 years ago. Many of them I incorporated slowly over the years as I learned about them. And now I think I've got, you know, a, a pretty good, uh, you know, compilation of things that have, that have benefited me and my athletes. So, you know, I have to say, uh, I really appreciate uh, you, you know, contacting me and interviewing me about the vertical diet because you provide diets and training for athletes as well. And uh, your system is excellent. And athletes are in good hands with you. There's three things I think that are most important. And it's not the vertical diet or, or anybody else's diet. There's three things that I've found that, uh, that are the most important things. And meta-analysis studies of all the literature regarding uh, health outcomes have, have proven that these are the top three things. And these are all three things that you provide. The first most important thing is meal prep. Whether you prep or you buy prep meals from a company, whatever, meal prep. That seems to be the most important thing is having what you need when you need it and it's the right food. And so I try and get all of my athletes to focus on preparing their meals, the right meals and having them available. That's why I talk about carrying around the thermos full of a hot meal that'll stay hot for 10 hours or two or three or six of them. If you're flying, Hoffler's flying out tomorrow from Vegas and he's got five thermos that he'll be uh, pouring meals into the same way I travel. So every three hours he can eat a nice hot monster mash on his way home to Iceland. Uh, so if you open your fridge and it's full of Tupperware, you're probably on point. And if you aren't and you're foraging for food at Subway or at the airport, then chances are your performance is going to suffer. And whether that's just a weight loss goal or as an athlete, um, you know, a lot of these guys reach out to me, uh, Nick Best, Brian Oberst, a whole bunch of reach out to me just because they saw Thor, Thor and Shaw when they traveled, had all their meals with them and everything that they needed. Um, their rice cooker or their Foreman grill or their monster mashes. They've stayed in a hotel with a microwave and a fridge. Everywhere they went, they knew that that was the single most important thing. They should skip a workout rather than skip a meal. They know that. So I don't mean to go on and on, but meal prep is the number one thing for outcomes. Uh, number two is a daily checklist. And that's all these things that, uh, like the 10-minute walks, the taking the vitamin D, wearing your CPAP, getting adequate sleep. I have a daily checklist of things that I require all of my clients to check out daily so I can supervise that and see if they're doing all the compliance issues. And number three is your coach, checking in with your coach on at least a weekly basis. What's the, mo the least effective method for uh, weight loss? Clinicians, dietitians, doctors. That turned out in the meta-analysis to be the least effective method. So your interaction with your clients, your ability to get them to comply with the daily uh, to-do list and uh, make sure that they're on point with their meals is 
the, I think the three biggest keys to success. Uh, and so I wanted to share that and appreciate you for, for helping so many people, uh, you know, reach their goals short term and long term. Thank you, man. I mean, just coming from you alone, I got to admit, man, it means a lot seriously because I look up to you as a coach as well. Um, and on, on that note, I think we can end. I think that was so much value that you just provided the listeners. I love that we went so in-depth in every aspect of the vertical diet. But you also shared uh, testimonials and case studies and different things that you're doing with your clients that I think people can really apply. So I really appreciate the way you went about it. Um, before we do sign off, is there anything you can let the listeners know? I mean, as far as where they can find you, your website, where they can get the book, all of that stuff so I can link it in the show notes? Yeah, stanefforting.com is my website, stanefforting.com. And uh, I do have the vertical diet there as a digital download that people can utilize for their, for their program, or they could come, uh, you have a very similar program, they come to you. Uh, and I do have the meal prep company, and that's at stanefforting.com. There's a link there if they want to buy meals. I partnered with one of the largest meal prep companies in the country. They serve 4 million meals a year, and they'll, uh, they'll ship them right to your house and uh, my signature item, of course, is the, the Monster Mash, and we now have the world's strongest meal. It's an 1,100-calorie uh, Monster Mash deluxe with spinach and peppers and, uh, and uh, uh, burger and rice made with uh, uh, bone broth. It's absolutely delicious, and uh, we have free shipping, and um, that's kind of one of the ways that I stay on point is I always have my meals ready. And uh, if, uh, if you prep your own meals or you buy mine, either way, you need to to make sure and do meal prep. And, and that's the, the single most important thing to success is that you're eating what you need when you need it. Stan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me, Biggs. All right, guys, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the show today. A couple quick announcements before I let you go. First and foremost, I just want to encourage you to check out the products I have in the description. First one is the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is a very cheap guide to literally mastering your diet. That's why it's called the all-inclusive guide to mastering your diet. It's going to teach you exactly what and how to manage your calories, your macros, your meal timing, your supplements, your micronutrients, literally everything you need to know about dieting and nutrition and how to change your body composition through nutrition is included in this book, not just to get your results, but to actually teach you how to get those results along the way. The next thing is going to be functional muscle, which is my first and right now my biggest product out there. This is the program that is based on years and years and years of functional training with tons of clients. So whether your goal is strength, fat loss, or muscle gain, you should be strength training towards these goals while prioritizing functional movement patterns to make sure that you are avoiding any injuries along the way. That's exactly what this program does, and it's great because it guides you through the process, it changes throughout the process, and it gives you demonstrations and explanations about everything you're doing so you never get confused and you always have a solution. You also get access into the Boom Boom Performance Podcast Forum. That is the only way into the forum, and that's where you can ask me literally anything about anything, and I will help guide you through the process. Last thing I want to mention, guys, is if you could leave me a five-star rating and review, that would be fantastic because it literally is one of the biggest and best ways for me to grow in the iTunes charts. Oh, yeah, and real quick, if you're not subscribed, hit the damn subscribe button because I constantly bust out content for you guys, and I spent a lot of time and effort making sure that you guys can get better results for free by simply listening to this podcast. All right, guys, I'll catch you next time.